hello, and welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast. I'm your host, Will DeGravio. As you will know if you listened to last week's episode, the podcast turned three years old this summer. I want to again thank everyone who has listened to the show, appeared as a guest, and assisted in some way with the show over the years. I am so grateful to all of you, to this community of people who are invested in videographic criticism. To celebrate, last week I curated clips from the first 10 episodes of the podcast, just to give you a sense of all the different kinds of conversations that have happened on the show over the years. This week, I have gathered clips from episodes 11 through 20. And as I already mentioned, gathering this audio also serves as preparation for a talk that I will be giving at the upcoming Theory and Practice of the Video Essay, an international conference on videographic criticism at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, later this month. My talk, Understanding and Podcasting, The Labor and Practices of Video Essaying, centers on three years of this program. The central question is, what can be learned by aggregating more than 30 podcast interviews with creators into a portrait or portraits of the video essayist? The following clips are part of my answer to that question. So here we go. The first calendar year of the video essay podcast ended with episode 11, a conversation dedicated to the 2019 sight and sound poll of the year's best video essays. I co-curated that list with Grace Lee and Ariel Avasar who have gone on to curate the list in 2020 and 2021 with Sydney Wilde Harris. In this clip, Ariel talks about his own process for selecting clips for the list. Well, I don't know if I have a philosophy per se. Uh, I did uh, choose my videos in advance before we got all the submissions because I I was thinking I would be a bit self-conscious about picking stuff that other people picked, second-guessing myself, so I didn't want to do that. Uh, And actually kind of... I don't know if it's cheating, but I just went over all the videos that I liked uh, on Vimeo or YouTube this past year, which isn't a lot. I don't uh, like a lot of videos. I mean, you know, the technical definition of like. So you have a a list of about 10 videos here and 10 videos there, and I rewatched them. And then I just picked whichever ones I felt. uh, I think one of the, the easiest part was what we talked about before, that this isn't the best of. There's a lot of pressure when you try to pick the best videos of the year. I wasn't. I was just trying to pick videos that resonate with me, that I liked. And I didn't even pick seven. I just went with six because it's a it's a nice number. Uh, so I, I made it to six and I just said, cool, that, that sounds, sounds about right. So yeah, it was completely um, subjective. I didn't try to think about any uh, what uh, should or shouldn't be in there and just the way I felt about it instinctively. Questions of terminology and what is what are crucial aspects of this work. Do we make video essays, videographic criticism, audiovisual essays? What is it? Episode 12 of the podcast featured a conversation with Liz Green, a scholar and film sound professional. In this clip, Liz discusses why she favors the term audiovisual essay and the treatment of sound in this work more generally. I kind of slip between using video essay as a kind of a shorthand, but probably my official line is the the audiovisual essay. I, I teach a module on the audiovisual essay, but when I'm trying to recruit students and promote the, the module to them, I call it the video essay because they know what that means. So they, right. they, they look at this stuff on the internet and it's, it's very easy to understand. So I think the video essay is probably a better term in terms of 
people readily understanding it. But I think audiovisual essay has the advantage of incorporating sound within it. And also we don't really do video or we very rarely do video anymore in video essays. I mean, I think Cormac Donnelly's Panscan Venkman uses video within the within the material, but not many other people are working with video. So it's not it's not an important point. But I think um I think audiovisual essay technically is probably what I'm more comfortable with, but video essay is probably what I use more often. But if I'm writing something down and being more precise, I'll go back to audiovisual essay. Do I think sound is overlooked? I think it, I think sound is treated in the video essay or the audiovisual essay uh, as it is in film studies. I think um, there are people who are very tuned in to thinking about sound and there are people who are not particularly interested. And I think that's reflected in the work that gets made. But there, I think it is a great medium to work in sound. And I think that's one of the things that really drew me to it. I got quite frustrated with some of my own writing, uh, trying to t- describe sound and realising it would be much better to just be able to play it. And that's the great opportunity of a video essay or an audiovisual essay is to be able to just play it out and let people hear it. One of the few video essayists who has a regularly recurring column, I put that in quotes, of videographic work is Scout Tafoya, who publishes his video essay series, The Unloved, at RogerEbert.com. In this clip, Scout discusses the unique ability that video essays have to show and reveal things about moving images and sounds to other people. In this clip, Scout also offers a window into the labor behind creating video essays, something that all of my past guests and many of you who are listening to this show right now who have made video essays can relate to. I've been a bartender for almost a decade now, and I know that when people come in here and they find out that you're interested in movies, they want to talk about the movies they've seen. They don't necessarily want recommendations for a new, you know, Senegalese or, you know... (laughs) Uh, Argentine movie. Every time they sit down, they want to know what you thought of the, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or whatever superhero movie is in the fucking theaters that week. And it's, you know, I get it. Certainly it's, you can't expect everybody to have the same sort of omnivorous taste, but it's also like, if all we do is talk in circles about the same topics, then we're never going to grow. And the discourse is going to go beyond that, which is why with the series, I just, I want to keep going because there's so much stuff that I don't get to talk about anywhere else. I can go on Twitter all day long and talk about, you know, whatever, the Westerns of Hugo Fragonese, but like leaving behind the actual work and really treating every single film as seriously as if it were, you know, whatever thing is just one best picture, you know, that's that's not something that everybody gets to do. And you actually get to show them the images too. Like it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to be like, look, at look, here it is. And that like, that is so intoxicating to finish the product and know that you've sort of left people a blueprint for, you know, how to appreciate this movie or rather, you know, sort of find the things that are most compelling about it to, to craft that argument. Like usually what I do is I find a movie and I like love it. And so I'll immediately convert, you know, the, the funny thing, the workflow of video essays is like the one thing that I can't quite make people understand. I mean, like I, you know, it's not, super complicated. It's just funny how tedious it is. You get the movie, you got to download it, you then you convert it to the usable file format so you can put it into Final Cut Pro. You got to write your essay, you got to record your essay, you got to plug it into the three different, you know, converter johns to get it into the new MacBook, which I saved up for like a year to buy. And then, you know, everything's got to be converted, you got to use the WAV files and the MOV file and then everything in the timeline and then you can go. But you have to make sure that you put the 
file format that you're going to use dominantly on the timeline first because Final Cut instantly takes on the you know the uh, the parameters of whatever the first file on the timeline is. And if you don't do that, you got to start the project over. It's it's just funny. So yeah, usually I just see you know I'll, I'll, I'll like I have things in mind that I know that I want to talk about. I've been like I've been trying to get through this series on Tony Scott for like the last two years. <laughs> um, not because of lack of interest, there's just other stuff keeps coming up. But, you know, sit down, watch the movie, take notes. As soon as I have what I know is, a, you know, a complete enough 500, 600, 700 word narration, then I can stop the movie or I can keep watching it and then start working on it. You know, got to do my voiceover on this, you know, microphone and then uh, and then get to work. If I have everything ready to go, you know, if I have every file I need and I have the voiceover recorded, I can get it done in like... I don't know, anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours. But sometimes you get halfway through and you realize you're missing something and then you got to find that and then you're on the internet and then you get distracted. And it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's just like, there's always been something else that I wanted to say. And there's always some other movie that I want to recommend or even better, you see a bad movie and it's got a lesson in it that you you like know you can pull out of it and, and sort of alert people to that stuff. Episode 14 of the show featured a conversation with the critic Lee Singer. In this clip, Lee, who makes the bulk of his work for well-known publications like the BBC, Little White Lies, and Sight and Sound, talks about the sense of discovery that comes with video essay making, and also the interplay between the work he creates and the audience that watches it. In this clip, he is discussing his video essay, The Movies Behind Your Favorite Reaction Gifts, which was made for Little White Lies. I think I've made a, a range of different type of video. By far, my favorite type is where it's basically a discovery process for me at the same time. I mean, to be to, to some extent, every video is because there's no way you go in with every single thing knowing what you want to say. But with this, there's actually a, you know, a very large research element to it because I certainly wasn't an expert on gifts and, and where they came from, what it was all about, that kind of stuff. So. It was very much a kind of like, well, I'd like to, you know, sort of dive into this and figure out something about it. And a lot of the things that are in the video are discoveries that I made along the way. Some of them completely fortuitous. Some of them you kind of hope you'll get to somewhere in that ballpark. But um, yeah, so I pitched the idea. And again, going back to what I said uh, early on about this kind of connection with an audience and thing, what we agreed early on with Little White Lies is that they would do a, a Twitter thread asking people to, you know, reply with their favorite movie gifts, knowing that I would then incorporate that into the video. And again, to me, that's very, you know, just goes with the sort of thing that I'm really interested in, this kind of two-way dialogue or discussion with people who might watch the, the video as well. And I mean, if you've seen the video, there are a few specific tweets from people that I've kind of highlighted. And in each case, I asked them, you know, I got in touch with them and said, look, I'd love to use this. Do you mind? And they were very kind and said yes. But again, it's like I'm using stuff that they have created independently of me or independently of this project. But it then can sort of all hopefully fold in together and, and be part of a cohesive whole. Anyone who watches video essays on YouTube may have noticed that popular video essayists adopt a certain aesthetic for their videos. In this clip from episode 15, Shannon Strucci talks about a crucial element of the YouTube video essay, the thumbnail. Uh, well, I never wanted to do just clickbait 
uh, titles or even I have I don't have a problem when other people do this because I have friends who do this but to do be like this is like Harry does like this is garbage and here's why or that I'm like I just don't I would rather have something kind of striking or weird and have a developed style I don't know exactly where it came from I know a lot of the time if you look at like uh, like I was really into anime and manga and the way that they that uh, Japanese people who write manga use the English language and the, if you look at the Japanese pages, it, it seems like very stylized or arbitrary how stuff is spaced or which words are capitalized or which words aren't. Or if I, I think a word is particularly striking or, or would be more impactful in all uppercase. I think if it wasn't bad for screen readers and if it wasn't like a little bit pretentious, I would use like, we, you know, the weird text generator where you can get all these different fonts. I would have um, fun with that. But I think it's just sort of I, I'll, I'll type out different ones and see what looks kind of fun to me. And then in my review, some of my videos, like the review series, the Strut you watch or whatever, it's all normal. But with fake friends or with other uh, videos, I just kind of think it's more impactful or fun. And the thumbnails, the thumbnail for fake friends too, I deliberately tried to make it look like like a weekly world news Photoshop, if you're familiar with that. Because at the in one of in the one of his Richard Dreyfus videos, Gabriel Gundacker's eyes turn black, so it's like Jacksepticeye, uh, Bo Burnham, and Gabriel Gundacker in the background, and they all have black eyes and this weird color and this like ugly, deliberately kind of ugly color to it. I just kind of uh, mess around with layer styles in Photoshop because I never want to put it's again. I don't want to put my face in a thumbnail, being like what and have it gets a lot more views, but I think it it would be very uh, silly for me to do that. So I just try to pick a very readable font and then look up a bunch of promo material for whatever I'm talking about and then like layer it and put weird effects on it until I think it looks kind of interesting or like pretty. I did, um, or I'll put sort of hidden references in it. Like I did a video essay about songs and grief. And one of the songs is about Timory Hyde, um, who was 23 and she fell out of a third story window on her birthday and died it was very sad and i found a really beautiful picture of her grave and that's the background of i don't say it but it's like the background of the thumbnail and i was like oh that's a little weird hidden tribute to her because i thought her grave was cool just stuff like that wow. episode 16 of the video essay podcast attempted to get a look at the video essay landscape through the eyes of those who publish videographic work in this clip, Adam Woodward of Little White Lies discusses how he, as an editor, views publishing video essays through the YouTube platform. I guess I see the, the audience on YouTube um, as, as, as more of a community, and it's obviously like a, a, a huge, multi-tentacled one, and it's very hard to get a sense of actually like who is on there and who is kind of watching our videos, because often the usernames are just like numbers and code and you know, you, you don't really get a sense of the, the actual people at the other end of the laptop or, or phone or whatever watching the stuff. But um, I, I, think, I think some of the stuff, I, I always have a sense of like when we're publishing something, this is probably something that people are going to uh, want to watch more of and maybe potentially want to comment on as well. Um, and it's usually the stuff which is a little bit less demanding, a little bit less like theory-based and it's just more purely uh, visual and gives you that instant gratification. I think a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, and, and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to publish a bit of a mixture and still trying to experiment as well. A, a lot of that more visual stuff, I think, is kind of easy wins for us. And I feel like that's the stuff which is really nice for for engagement. And and I recognise that some of the the, the gifts video actually is probably a perfect. It's somewhere in the middle in that it's very visual and, and actually dealing with something that's very popular, but is taking a little bit more of an analytical or critical 
approach to it. But I, but I recognize that some of the videos we do, some of the longer form stuff and, and the more theory based stuff is, is not going to necessarily do, it is, it's not going to be for everyone, basically. It's, it, it, you know, it requires a little bit more from the audience. And I think YouTube, I, I mean, you just have to look at the who are the biggest stars on youtube right they're like gamers and vloggers and i think what we're doing is 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 not that stuff so the 17th episode of the video essay podcast was an especially significant one for me jason mattel and christian keithley joined to discuss their work founding and running the scholarship in sound and image workshop at middlebury college it was after working as the teaching assistant at the workshop that i came up with the idea to start this podcast in this clip Jason talks about their goal to help create a community of practice around this work within academia and beyond. That community has only continued to grow ever since their first workshop, which was held in 2015 and fully funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. One of the things I remember we put in the first grant and has been a kind of touchstone for me is that the goal of the workshop or a key goal of the workshop is to create a community of practice. You know, while we want each individual participant to take steps forward in being a maker, consumer and teacher of videographic work, I think what we really wanted more than more than that at the individual level was to have a sense that there is a community within academia that talks about these things, that watches them, that makes them, that thinks through how it could be supported and spread. And that that community is not just limited to the intense two weeks of the workshop, that it lasts beyond that. Like that was... I mean, we had a lot of concerns the first year. Will anyone apply? Will it be, you know, will it work? You know, will people feel motivated enough to actually do the work? But then I think one of the main questions is, okay, when they leave, will they keep doing it? And and we never thought, like, we would be a failure if... Every, if, unless every single person does. But enough people that we feel like, okay, this makes a difference. And we really were conscious that first year especially of selecting people. At first, we weren't sure we were going to get enough applicants. Uh, we kind of wrote the grant assuming planning for around 15 applicants or 15 participants. Would we get enough? And I remember like the week before the deadline, we had about 12. And we're like, uh, well, we could run it with 12, I guess. And then, you know, because it's academia, uh, the day before the deadline, we got a flood of people applying. We ended up getting 120 applicants for only 15 slots, right? So like that was gratifying. Okay, people want to do this. That's great. The amazing thing is that not only have most of the people from that first workshop become really significant videographic critics, editors that use videographic criticism in their work, uh, in their publishing work, and also uh, teachers of videographic work, but that it really is a community. There are some really strong friendships that develop through the workshop and collaborations as well, where people are working together. So, you know, in that regard, and I attribute it primarily, well, to two things. First thing, to the quality of the people who were there, right? We just got great people. But also to the fact that, especially for faculty, there's a real specialness to the ability to spend two weeks away from home focused on something new and learning. Most people who become 
you know, academics love to learn, and oftentimes the job prevents you from doing that, at least in a really intense way. So I think that, that that's the sort of magic of the workshop that I didn't anticipate that has really been the, the sustenance, is that people love to do it because it's just an opportunity to learn and to learn as a community. Episode 18 featured writer and video essayist Sydney Wild Harris. In this clip, Sydney, who earned a master's degree at the Savannah College of Art and Design, discusses the academic environment in which she created her video essay, Cotton, the Fabric of Genocide. For me, this clip reveals the ways in which essayists often bring in sources and ideas from various aspects of their life and work, and how sometimes, encountering a moving image work that one does not expect can lead to some of the best video essay work out there. This is actually going back to the same um, melodrama class I, I mentioned earlier with Dr. Chad Newsom. Um, he has a really cool collector's edition, like Blu-ray box set of Gone with the Wind that we were using um, to like actually watch Gone with the Wind and talk about it. Uh, it's a melodrama, so it was a part of the lesson plan. Um, but he, I guess in the, in the special features, it's a part of the DVD box set. So... I assume that he came across it and said, this will be interesting to share, like instructed by Fred Cinnamon, this will be interesting to share with the class about uh, just the history of how Gone with the Wind was created, how it was marketed, and how a piece of film media was used to market an, an even bigger piece of film media that would be coming the next year. So he, he showed it in our classroom, and I just remember <laughs> we were all, it was effectively like not played for laughs, but you know, it it plays how it reads, which is absurd. And I just remember watching that for the first time on, you know, on a, on a projection, on a screen projected up there that it, and that actually might've been in a theater too, come to think of it. We might've been, you know, like watching Gone with the Wind. And also here's this companion piece to it. Um, I just remember hearing the word cotton over and over again and thinking like cotton, the fabric of our lives. Like it just, am I allowed to say that? I'm, I'm not advocating or endorsing the cotton, the brand, um, but I couldn't separate the, the two. I couldn't hear cotton being talked about in such a politicized way um, and not see all of the different cotton ads that like we have grown up seeing on television our entire lives who are largely populated by, by white women um, with the exception of Queen Latifah once um, and uh Liana Lewis had a, a campaign with them in, like, I want to say 2007 or 8. Um, but for the most part, it's like, because obviously, like, the optics of, of, in, of having an entire ad campaign based around cotton and featuring, like, African-American performers maybe won't read great everywhere, given the history that we all understand cotton has. Um, so that, that was my first experience viewing it was like, oh, this is fascinating. Um, and I also had for... For each class, I my class with Dr. Newsom and my class with Dr. Tracy, I had uh, two separate video essay assignments, and I had ideas for both of those assignments already. But when I saw this this short film, I was immediately inspired, and I wondered if one of them would let me do something with it. So I ended up actually creating Cotton for Dr. Tracy's class, even though I watched um, Zinnemann's film in Dr. Newsom's class. Um, it was a fascinating process. It's a fascinating little film. And also just because um, the imagery related to, to cotton is so prevalent in a lot of the films that are made that also have black people and characters in them because so many 
um, films that happen to feature black people or, or black Americans also, for whatever reason, happen to take place during slavery or happen to take place during sharecropping or have flashbacks <laughs> where we're in fields picking cotton. It's always cotton. Um, so there was just this rich history. Of, and also on top of that, at the time, I was writing a paper about um, that would become my thesis. That was about Nate Parker's The Birth of a Nation from 2016, um, which is another film about enslaved African peoples and a revolt that took place. So I had all this imagery around me, you know, had all this imagery around me already. And then we happened to watch this this short film and it just kind of fit perfectly. And luckily I was in an, a, a supportive creative environment is a supportive creative and academic environment that Dr. Cox Stanton signed off on, on me using it. And it was a really, I'm so happy that she did. In 2020, Sydney, Kevin B. Lee, and I co-curated the Black Lives Matter video essay playlist following the murder of George Floyd. Selections from the playlist screened at the Open City Documentary Festival. We held a live event with some of the creators. In this clip, you will hear YouTube video essayist Professor Flowers. Here, Professor Flowers discusses the creation of the video, Real Talk, BreadTube, How Can We Discuss Race? Yeah, I made this video actually, like, before the protest happened, like very shortly before. And I think it's also why that video got more views because people were like, oh, like we should be aware of race. Where's a video talking about race? Oh, here's a video talking about race. And, um, but I think, uh, I, I think it's really still relevant in a way that it's on a playlist, like the Black Lives Matter playlist, because it's really the goal is just like, specifically in leftist spaces to try to talk about ending racism, because I think it's like a multiracial space where we can really work together. Um, but I do think it was interesting that it was, it was made before the protests. Um, because I feel like now when I, before I made the video, I was like, yeah, there's not a lot of content. Like at the end of the day, my goal is to make a video on whiteness and like what that is, is whiteness as a racial construct. And I was like, there is no way if I make a video about that, I will probably just get a flood of hatred. And if anyone really tries to make a video about it, 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 it just won't go well, even though that's probably one of the most important issues to talk about with race. So that's why I started making this video because I was like, we need to have these layered discussions about race. And for me, like we really need to talk about whiteness and like all of all of these videos were trying to build up to that. And it's kind of funny in some ways because the protest happened now that we're like in this, like still, they're still happening. Um, people are able to receive people are kind of like, oh, OK, like there is a really big issue with racism and we have to talk about it. So I almost wonder if I really even needed to make that video because the the, the existence of the protests themselves was like a wake up call to so many people. Or it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, race is a huge issue. So I'm so glad I made my video and said, let's have more nuanced conversations. But especially with the protests, it's like, I think that became very apparent anyways to so many people. And finally, episode 20 of the Video Essay Podcast featured a conversation with video artist and video essayist Nelson Carval. In this clip, Nelson discusses his desire to collect images and how he thinks about the quote-unquote quality of images when creating his work. 
I grew up in a very sort of analog. I didn't have a computer. I didn't have internet growing up. It was all like I would go to the video store. I would have to rip tapes, VHS tapes, you know, you go to the Walgreens and get like a six hour, you know, blank tape. And I would be able to like obsess with how many movies I could fit on there. And so it was always about like, how do I collect? And I didn't realize it now, but the word is curate my cinema. How do I curate all these moving images? You know, I would drive my mother crazy as a kid because all I would ever want as uh, for birthdays were to go to the movies or to just buy me a physical copy of that movie. You know what I mean? So even, and then with DVDs. So with uh, video essays, especially you got to understand in 2008, if you look at it, I mean, you look at stuff like Facebook was just invented three or four years earlier. You know, at that time, you know, this idea of like being like a, an influence or whatnot, that, that was so far, so far out of our, our heads or grasps. You know, this idea of like a Twitterverse was still sort of in its infancy. You know, I joined Twitter like in 2009, like just a couple of years before I started putting my own, you know, videographic work out there without even realizing how pivotal it would be. But um, it was like, it was like we were just, we're just trying to uh, basically it was this, it was a race to how, how, how do we keep a whole, how, how do we keep track of, how do we collect and, 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 and organize all these videos. And a lot of it was like, you know, I would using uh, apps like Handcrank to rip DVDs and all that. But, but, but yes, it didn't matter how the image got to me and it didn't matter how it looked like particularly to put it out there. And I'll say as a very specific example, there was a video essay I did. I remember getting a lot of pushback comments on uh, about like Wes Anderson. It was just some super cut kind of thing I was doing for press play at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was great and I thought it moved well, but the biggest complaint people were saying was like, yeah, but you zoomed. Basically what I did was because some of the images were better than others and some of the clips were pixelated because I was ripping everything off of YouTube. Now that not all the aspect ratios were true to size. Basically, I, I made everything like 16 by nine as opposed to like, you know, uh, more 2.35 by one or whatnot. And that was what people took away from it. And that's when I started realizing that like, you know, I really did see images in a sort of a more emotional, almost like a, I, images were like a family member where it's like, I wasn't looking at what they're, you know, you don't look at a family member or a relative or a close loved one with at their resume. You look at how they make you feel. So for me, I, I didn't necessarily care if like my shot of a record playing in Moonrise Kingdom was a little tighter than what the actual wide shot was because my the way I made sense of it was how does this shot going to relate to the next shot I'm going to put after it with whatever audio or music I'm playing? Because with video essays, the thing that whether it's a voiceover or whether it's pure, what I call pure video essay cinema, which is no voiceover, it's the emotion it's eliciting, right? So the movie makes you feel one thing. A video essay is supposed to make you feel sort of like uh, it's supposed to be the dialogue afterwards. It's supposed to be how you process something, right? It's supposed to be like, um, it's the elixir. So for me, it's like, I didn't really care if it was the highest resolution clip. I cared about the rhythm. Thank you so much for listening to part two of the Video Essay Podcast's third year anniversary celebration. And be on the lookout for part three coming very soon. 